Hello there. Welcome to the Right to Read initiative. My name is Dr. Katherine Garforth from Garforth Education. And today I have the pleasure of Sarah Pedden joining me again. Uh, we've had a couple of conversations so far about various recommendations from the Right to Read initiative. And today we're going to be focusing specifically on the recommendations around assessment and identification of specific learning disorders, because this is essential to make sure that our students that are having the most difficult time accessing the right to read, get the support that they need. So thank you again for joining me today, Sarah. Do you wanna give listeners a little bit of background about who you are and what you do? Sure. Uh, thanks for having me again, Catherine. It's always been a pleasure to have these conversations. I am Sarah Peden, and I uh, am a school psychologist in Alberta. I registered here as a school psychologist in 1992, so a little while back. <laughs> and uh, in the first part of my career, I worked in the northern and central part of the province in Alberta, uh, doing a lot of consulting with schools and uh, assessment and identification. And then a little bit later on in 97, I were, came down to Calgary where I worked for one of the big school boards and uh, did that until 2016. Um, some fairly traditional role at first, but later on doing a lot of policy work and uh, teacher development around spe various special education needs. But my specialty was in learning disabilities and reading in particular. Um, so, and then since 2016, I've been uh, pretty much uh, focused in my private practice where I do a lot of direct intervention. So I don't do as much assessment anymore, uh, although I still do some, but more actually directly teaching kids to read, which is the best thing in the world. Yeah. And especially I find it so rewarding when we're talking about students that are struggling uh, with that initial process uh, so that we can make sure that they're getting access to what public school is supposed to be providing for them. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I'm always sort of, you know, on that stressed by what they're not getting in school, but impressed by what they can do when they have the direct intervention that they need. Um, you know, it's just there's nothing more rewarding than helping a struggling reader get to the point where they feel like, oh, hey, I am a reader and I can attack these words and I do know how to read. And it's very exciting. Right. So I want to dive right into recommendation 111 uh, from the Ontario Human Rights Commission's Right to Read report. And this is under the category of professional assessments yes. and the topic of update criteria for identifying a word reading disability or dyslexia and make sure that all students who need support have them. As a dyslexic individual myself and the parent of a dyslexic, I think this is essential and necessary, and it needs to be done in a timely manner when we can have the interventions having the biggest impact. This will make things better for the student, their families, and educators in the school because we're going to have it so that the students' needs are being met right away. We're not waiting for them to fail, 
making it instruction in the classroom easier because you have a more homogeneous group instead of having that heterogeneous group full with students on various extremes and in the middle, having trying to, to shift your instructional strategies because that can be challenging. Very hard. Mm -hmm. But I, I would jump in there right with, you know, that, that same thought that it's not only better for the individuals who need the extra supports to learn to read, it's better for every student if every student can read. Because as you say, the, you know, reducing that, that range of uh, students' capacities for reading in the classroom um, is, is really important to making teaching about the content that you're trying to teach. You know, after grades two or three, you're really getting into, you know, using reading to learn. And when children can't do that, um, readily, then they're not able to learn as easily access the curriculum and that creates frustrations and all kinds of things that, that lead into other difficulties. I think I mentioned last time working in a school division where I knew I could see that the less assessment we did of uh, learning issues, the more we were identifying behavioral issues and it was like you could, you could see it on the graph sort of. So um, I think that that's a, a key. I'd also say that one of the interesting things about this recommendation is they're very clear that, you know, it needs to be a policy change here that they're recommending. Um, sometimes people, I think, aren't, aren't totally aware of how important it is to get the policy right. Because even if people, even if a lot of people on the front lines don't really know what the, exactly what the policy says, um, it's important that there's a, a, a policy that joins, that can join people in their thinking, that this is the way that it is expected to be done. And there's a consistency and a reliability to that. So they're talking about changing that um, policy. They, it's referred to in the recommendations as PPM8, which is just a policy and procedural, I can't remember what the M stands for, but um, it, basically to align with the research and the DSM criteria. So for people who aren't familiar with the DSM, that's the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual that, that psychologists, psychiatrists, um, other professional health professionals, like speech and language pathologists sometimes um, will use to say, okay, what are the, how do we know when somebody has a specific learning disorder? What are the criteria? And there's actually a manual, like literally it's a manual <laughs> that, that people can turn to I, to say, yeah, what are the criteria? In my other office. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but we use it all the time, right? And, and that's, it's an important thing to have a consistent way of saying this is how we know when someone has this specific learning disorder. And it refers to dyslexia in that um, category of difficulties, specific learning disorders. And the word identification and spelling difficulties are specifically recognized as, you know, this is, a dis this is also known as dyslexia. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and in the DSM manual, it's referred to as a specific learning disorder in reading and right. is the possibility to have it in reading, writing, and mathematics. So right. let's, I'm going to just read 111 uh, and we'll go through A, B, and C just because I think each one of those is on a really important topic to speak about. Okay. So 
It says the Ministry of Education should work with external experts to immediately revise PPM-8 to align with the research and DSM-5, and I'm going to add uh, TR because there has been a text revision criteria, to, uh, and to address any potential biases. This includes A, removing the statement that students must have intellectual abilities that are at least in the average range and any reference to discrepancy or inconsistency between their intellectual abilities and achievement to be identified with learning disability and making it clear that at least average intelligence is not required for receiving reading interventions or other support. Now, I was talking to uh, Dr. Linda Siegel earlier in the week, and she has uh, an article from 1992 in the Journal of Learning Disabilities where she shows based on the research that she's done that it's really irrelevant whether there is a discrepancy between that IQ uh, and achievement and those that have it and those that don't, the interventions are going to help support both students. And, you know, dating back to 1998, when she had the article again in the same journal of learning disabilities, where she showed that we don't actually need that IQ test as part of the diagnostic criteria. The information from the IQ test or the, the cognitive assessment doesn't really impact the outcome of the intervention and give us useful information that's gonna really help us understand what that student needs uh, you know, it may highlight some gifts, but also during that test, we are testing areas um, the way that we're asking questions and getting them to do things that could be testing their areas of weakness from the beginning. So what are your thoughts? So I, I would, I both agree and, and disagree in the sense that I think that the um, yeah, if, if, if we're strictly looking at intervention, Mm -hmm. The most important parts of what we need to assess in, you know, at the at early on in the process of providing, you know, more intensive intervention is the actual reading profile. Mm -hmm. And in fact, in the assessments that I do now, while I continue to do some intellectual ability assessment mm -hmm. for various reasons we'll get into, I actually organize everything that I do in my assessment reports uh, around the reading profile, the writing profile, the math profile. So if I'm if I'm talking about the reading profile of a student, I need to know both. If, for those of you who may uh, remember Scarborough's reading rope, where she show, shows how all the different aspects of reading, uh, all the different background skills that you need, kind of weave together to lead you to reading. Well, one of the important pieces of that reading rope is, you know, vocabulary, background knowledge, those kinds of things. And the intellectual ability tests actually dive into that a little. And yes, they can be 
Um, you know, they can be testing areas of weakness, but they are areas of weakness that may be impacting the reading profile. So I want to know about the child's verbal comprehension. I want to know about their uh, background knowledge. If I do a test, for example, called information, which is a supplemental test on a, on a IQ test. So there are ways to use the information from those intellectual assessments that I think um, can be very beneficial for outlining for people where the strengths are within a reading profile and where the weaknesses are, because there is a difference between what I would expect a child to need in intervention when they have, let's say, for example, they have strong vocabulary, but poor working memory and there's and their um, phonemic awareness, both aspects of phonological processing when you're measuring working memory by words or numbers or whatever. So I would say that the intellectual assessment is the least important part in designing intervention because there are other ways to get measures of vocabulary or know how much background knowledge a student has. But it's not unimportant. Like it's not like you don't get any information from it. So I'm not, I'm not trying to say that you don't get information and that it isn't valuable. It is valuable information, but when we're trying to think of being the most efficient yes, and the ability to, um, the ability to get these individuals the support that they need as quickly as they can, right. adding that cognitive portion to the assessment takes a lot of time. And when we look at the weight, expertise and yeah. expertise, if we look at the wait list that we currently have for those psychoeducational assessments, and if we're taking, because it's not just the actual physical time of giving the cognitive portion of the assessment, it's the, the scoring, the reporting and everything. And it I months between, between when a child is referred, you know, yeah. to actually get the assessment, we're not even talking wait lists, but from the time that they get referred for the actual assessment to when the report is written, it's all been discussed with everybody and an IPP has been written based on it, that can be many months, you know, yeah. that, that that takes. So it is, we don't ever want that to be a slowdown to intervention. And that is, um, I think that that's where we have to look at this recommendation in the context of all of the other recommendations which are that while you may choose to do assessments to get a more specific, you know, trajectory for intervention or, you know, more guidance for intervention, that is never, uh, should never be a bottleneck for intervention. And that's, that's addressed very clearly in the other recommendations of this yeah, as well. And, and we'll get to those. And I, and I see kind of that the IQ component being that tier three component. If we're looking at, at it that way, right? So if we're able to get the, you know, some of not the informal, but doing the, the achievement tests exactly that we have a classroom, because those are considered a B level test so that the learning support teachers with the appropriate training can administer those, get that done quickly, efficiently and get the support what we need before having to go for that full psychoed assessment that includes the IQ component. Correct. And then that's where the bottleneck is. And that's where we're waiting. You know, we're waiting till kids get into grade two or the end of grade two, grade yep. three. Yep. Right. 
where At we- At the very can, least. I mean, I have the, yeah. you still hear people in school systems saying that, you know, we, we don't assess children before they're eight or when they're, in, yeah. until they're yeah. in grade three at the earliest. And that's the exact opposite of what we should be thinking from a research aligned and, you know, an evidence-based practice says no, early yeah. identification is critical. And that doesn't necessarily mean early identification of a disorder. It means early identification of a reading difficulty that we then address and provide whatever intervention is needed. Exactly. So that's, that's where I think, I mean, it, it's not that it's irrelevant. It's just in this situation, uh, and we're talking about um, making sure that the students that have a need for the support get the support as quickly and efficiently as possible, and realizing that maybe that full psychoeducational assessment that includes the IQ portion maybe just necessary at a future date. Exactly. We're not going to have that as a holdup, right? right? I totally think that this recommendation is is beneficial in in the sense that it's saying okay if and when you're going to do assessment mm-hmm. of, a, of this more formalized or you know the psychoeducational kind of assessment then make sure that you're including these a b and c factors in your policy mm-hmm. um, but it it has to be understood in that context of that that, that the intellectual assessment is part of the overall diagnostic part um, isn't ever you know used as basically a gatekeeper for services which um, I'm afraid unfortunately it has been is that you're you're only eligible for services if you have a specific learning disorder or learning disability or dyslexia yeah but the wait list to find out if you have any of those is so long so you're not getting services in the meantime and that's just wrong like that 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 is just not what we want and we see school systems you know moving away from those approaches to be fair there is an issue for school systems when when you're serving you know thousands and thousands tens of thousands even hundreds of thousands of students you have to have some method of determining how to deploy resources. Mm-hmm. And this has been a method that's sort of been used to deploy resources that, you know, really we need much better methods. And I am seeing some school divisions, certainly in, in Alberta, uh, mm-hmm. moving to some different ways of looking at how to deploy resources so it doesn't rely on this, um, as a, which really acts as a funnel and just reduces the number of students getting services. Right. Now, the next um, this component of this is removing the statement that students' learning difficulties should not be the result of socioeconomic factors, cultural differences, lack of proficiency in the language of instruction. Now, I feel this is extremely important because even if you know the student ha- comes from a, a poor socioeconomic background and may not have had the same exposure, Uh, There may be cultural differences or the lack of proficiency. The type of instruction that we're advocating for, for students with a specific learning disorder in reading is going to benefit these students. And we've seen this repeatedly in research. This is best practices in instruction for students in learning how to read regardless. Exactly. 
exactly. Now, I'm pleased to see this overall recommendation 111 that says, you know, let's update the criteria. Let's recognize that if we're looking at dyslexia, we need to be aligned with, you know, best practices and the DSM uh, if you're going to do that kind of assessment. I'm a little concerned about there, there's a little bit of um, inconsistency within 111 that I that I would just like to point out that just needs to be it, it's not a big deal breaker it's not going to be impossible to resolve mm -hmm. you just have to understand it carefully because the first thing that they say is revise the ppm8 to align with the research and dsm criteria okay yeah and then in parts in part b as you just said they say remove the statement that the learning difficulties sh should not be the result of socioeconomic. Well, in order to have a learning disorder yeah. identified, you do need to make sure that you're not talking about just merely social economic yes. factors or disadvantage or lack of opportunity or lack of instruction to, uh, to for me to diagnose a learning disorder. Yeah, like uh, I actually that it's something in the child. Yeah, you know the child's processing, the oh. child's brain development. The you know that it's an internal learning disorder. Yeah, I need to know that that isn't a factor, just merely of their disadvantage, their uh, lack of exposure, etc. So in order to diagnose, I need to rule those things out as the primary cause. Yeah, but in order to provide services. I need to make sure that those are not limiting factors. Exactly. So do you see what I'm saying about there just being a slight dis, uh, mm -hmm. discontinuity within 111? As long as everybody reads it the way that I'm sort of saying that, you know, it's one thing to diagnose a learning disorder, but in the context of all of this, we know that that shouldn't limit services. Yes. Yeah. And the services are what they're talking about in 1B, I think. Well, and, and that's how I read it. And I see it. I say, I'm not saying that this means that they're going to get a diagnosis of a specific learning disorder. Exactly. Reading. They're being identified for need for intensive intervention. Yes. And because they, they put the diagnosis piece in the, in the beginning of 111, yeah. I was just wanting to make sure that people are clear about that, that the difference between diagnosis from a uh, professional, you know, we're identifying a disorder versus diagnosis in a more informal sense that we have a learning problem that we need to address that we're going to provide services for. Yeah. And then when we look at C, it's just very brief and short, but I think it's very meaningful is keeping the focus on academic functioning, functioning throughout. Yeah. Now, again, this is how you read it and how you interpret it. And I think a big piece that needs to be acknowledged here is you can get so much information from a psychoeducational report if you understand what you're looking for and what it means, how it can help instruction. Unfortunately, I feel that teachers are not getting the training to understand how to use the psychoeducational assessment to their advantage to understand how to best support their students, even if they're having uh, specializations in learning disabilities, this is not something that they're getting the understanding of how to use that psychoeducational assessment to their advantage. I've actually created a course for this 
uh, because there are so many times when I'm working with people and they're like, well, yeah, it's just numbers that that doesn't mean anything to me. I'm like, well, it should. Yes. And we can help you yes. to make it mean, meaningful, but only like, again, as you say, that's a, that's a professional learning and professional learning doesn't come free. Like, I mean, it can when teachers go out and seek their um, own professional learning and try to uh, find, there's lots of sources uh, of information. Um, but if a school system or a province or, or a school individually wants to provide professional learning, then that's part of the budgeting that happens. And, and you know, we've talked about I mean, one of the, the aspects of this entire inquiry report is how costly it's going to be in a, in a very good investment way. I mean, we'll, we'll reap the benefit of that investment multiple times, I believe. But at this stage where teachers are needing so much training, both in terms of the interventions for students, the way to teach reading in the classroom in the first place, and the, I should have said those in the other direction. First, we want classroom teachers knowing how to you know, teach in high quality classroom instruction in K to three, especially for reading and then uh, intervention. And then at that highest level, understanding psych reports. Um, all of those are professional learning. Uh, you know, it's, it's not, not difficult for a school to reach out and say, my staff needs this training, mm -hmm. but people, you know, other professionals that provide that training are making a living doing it. So it, it costs something. Well, and they should be paid for doing the training because it's... No, well, of course, like, I mean, you know, I, I mean, I'm sure you and I would agree on this without trying to be like, I do a lot of pro bono work. So it's not that uh, like, I don't want people to think that, you know, I'm, I'm merely in it for the money, but I do have expenses. I have, you know, a life to live and everything. And, and, you know, this is 30 years of expertise that I've built up in this uh, range. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think that uh, people can get the training if they can find the budget for it. Exactly. Now let's look at- oh, sorry, can I just say one more thing about C, about keeping yeah, the focus on academic functioning throughout? Yeah. I do think that we do want to make sure to have a broad enough understanding of academic functioning because academic functioning is not just what can you do in a quiet one-on-one -on -one environment with reading, writing, and math if somebody's sort of assessing that when they're telling you exactly what the activity is, exactly what the task is, they're keeping you on track, they're, they're um, you know, deciding when things are too easy or too difficult and they're moving you along. In, in a standardized way during an assessment. When we get into a classroom, all of the executive functioning pieces of a learning profile are huge in, in the classroom. You know, is this a student that can keep themselves on track, that can recognize what the task requires and break it down into sort of, okay, this is where I need to start, this is what I need to do next, and so on. And those are, directly part of academic functioning in my mind, but they're not labeled reading, writing, mathematics. They're, they're talking about executive functioning or the planning and organizational functions of, of um, the human thought processes and the brain functioning. So I don't want this focus on academic functioning to be so narrow to reading, writing, math 
that it's not recognizing all the factors of cognition that impact on that. And again, that can be why sometimes uh, further assessment of executive functioning uh, can be beneficial. And that's usually part of a more of the professional assessment. Definitely. And, you know, I think we both agree the, the extreme importance in understanding executive functioning and how that actually contributes to learning in the classroom mm-hmm. and the limiting factors that it can place on a student's ability to learn. In the yes. classroom. And I think that that's part of why we do reach a point where we want to see uh, a professional assessment and identify is there a learning disorder? Does it have an executive functioning component or whatever? after you've done the intervention to teach the child the skills of reading. Um, so, you know, that's that sort of looking at, yeah, we can teach the child to read. We don't need that assessment in order to know how to teach phonemic awareness, phonics, fluency, vocabulary, comprehension strategy, etc. We don't need an IQ test to do that. But later on, if we're looking at the lifelong learning supports that some students will need, um, then I think that we need, we do need, you know, it's beneficial to get into a deeper assessment. Mm-hmm. Well, in undersea, there's a little bit of a, a footnote, I suppose, saying that the ministry should also work with external experts to re-examine all exceptionality definitions, such as definitions for intellectual disabilities based on the changes to PPM8, and should ensure that the criteria for other exceptionalities do not include or exclude these students from receiving instruction and supports. And I think this is especially important when we look at some of those other diagnoses like Down syndrome, uh, looking at students on the autism spectrum, mm-hmm. uh, and other. We, we have medical, uh, yeah. in, in Alberta, the fetal alcohol syndrome is identified yeah. under the medical categories. Yeah. <laughs> Pardon me. Um, <clears throat> still recovering. Um, and yes, the, all of those, you know, children can learn to read. It, y- yes, you, you know, has there maybe been some effect of alcohol on a developing brain? Maybe and that child can still learn to read. Um, you know, obviously there's many factors involved, but same thing with all these others. So um, I do think that, you know, one of the things I'd like to see more is when we have, especially when we have students in, in well, referred to sometimes as congregated settings, if you're bringing children together to say, okay, this group of students, and let's, let's think about a classroom that may be designed specifically for students with the kind of functioning that Down syndrome students may have if they're a little lower on that, um, on that IQ scale. And we talk about how important it is to teach life skills, for example, and, and that is important that children, but it's not instead of teaching children to read. You know, we, we can teach children to read at least as well as their overall language comprehension is developed. And we can, and we can um, enhance language comprehension by the rich language experiences that we provide in school. So none of that is instead of learning, you know, none of the life skills, the other things that we wanna focus on, social skills, uh, social understanding, all of the kinds of things that we may need to focus on for various exceptionalities has to be in addition to reading. Definitely, definitely. So when we go to one 
12, it's looking at reflecting the current DSM-5 that I'm going to add, the, the TR, the text revision, because that's the most updated version of the DSM. Criteria showing that A, the student with difficulties in reading, writing, or math skills, which have persisted for at least six months, even though the student has received interventions that target that difficulty. So that's looking at making sure these students have that persistent struggle in the area and not having a, you know, a good quality instruction and intervention in place catches them up. Yes. So we're, we're not saying that we're pushing for all students that struggle with reading to be diagnosed with a specific learning disorder. Not at all. We want to make sure that only the ones that truly have it get the diagnosis, but also provide the students that don't have it with the same quality intervention that gives them the opportunity to catch up. I, this is um, sort of relates directly to, you know, going back to what does high quality classroom instruction look like? Yes. And some of the, you know, we, you and I talked about this a little bit before about, you know, the different philosophies of how kids learn to read that teachers were taught in their teacher preparation programs. Yeah. Um, and they were uh, many teachers today were taught that sort of if you expose children enough to reading that that's sort of how they learn to read and that if you make it a joyful, pleasant experience, they're going to want to do it and it's going to unfold naturally. And we now know that that's not the case for very many, for many, many students. So this aspect of, you know, six months, even though they've received targeted interventions, also should rest on that idea that their general classroom experience is based on how children learn to read in the first place, not just the classroom experience is about being read to a lot or having lots of opportunity to read. Definitely. Part B says that difficulties result in the affected academic skills being substantially and quantifiably, quantifiably below those expected for the student's age. This is determined through standardized achievement tests and a clinical assessment. Now, we're making sure that we're not just doing this base, uh, giving a diagnosis based on informal measures and um, given by a classroom teacher because they don't have the training, the expertise, the time or the resources to put into uh, this, this type of assessment. It is a skilled assessment that does take hours of training and professional learning to do. And, you know, there are amazing screening and progress monitoring measures that can identify the risk, but we do need the professionals to actually give the diagnoses. Yes, and one of the things I'd like to point out here too is that, um, you know, teachers in different areas have a different understanding of what typical looks like. So for example, I know that there are, in the city that I live in, there are areas that, and most cities, there are areas that we know that uh, families are typically very affluent, their children have had a great deal of uh, opportunity and advantage, and the relative, the rate of children having significant learning issues in reading is somewhat lower because 
those are the, the situations where it really doesn't matter for a lot of those children how you teach them to read. They are reading fairly relatively easily. So those teachers often have an idea of what's typical at grade one is a child picking up a novel like, or let's say Encyclopedia Brown or the Magic Treehouse books or those kinds of things. And lots of their grade one children are doing that. And so they think that that's sort of what a typical grade one student might be able to do. And they don't necessarily have the wider viewpoint of actually that's not typical for all grade one students. There's, a, you know, stages that we go through of, of developing um, reading skill and other parts, you know, where if you're in a very, very high needs situation, where you may think that, you know, it's not unusual for children to finish grade one with just being able to read consonant, vowel, consonant words. And actually, that's not typical either. It's somewhere in between those two. So teachers, by their very nature of their profession and their experience, can't necessarily have the same standardized vision of what's typical and uh, you know what is substantially and quantifiably below what would be expected at a certain age. Mm -hmm. Now, C is stating that the learning difficulty started during school age years or even preschool, although it may not have become fully evident until young adulthood in some people. I, I can see why this is in, but I don't know if it's very relevant mm -hmm. um, given the age of the population that we're talking about in elementary and high school years, because we are talking about those school age years. Yeah, I think what they're trying to do in 112 is to do a pretty quick summary of what the DSM criteria are. Yeah. And so although it's not as relevant in this context, it is part of what the DSM says. So yeah. they're trying to provide that relatively comprehensive picture of what the DSM says. And, and in some ways, it's, it, 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 it is important in the situations that we have in schools where just because a student hasn't been identified before grade seven or eight or 12 doesn't mean they don't have a specific learning disorder. They may, if its impact was much less in the earlier grades and is getting the impact is growing and growing and growing as they go up. So I think that it is important for people to realize just because nobody realized it in grade one mm -hmm. doesn't mean you don't have a problem, an issue. Yeah. Uh, and then D relates to that the problem's not solely due to intellectual disabilities, hearing or vision problems, or other mental or neurological disorders, Adver adverse conditions, or inadequate instruction. However, reading disabilities and dyslexia can coexist with other disabilities, including mental and neurological disorders. And again, I think this is we're focusing on the, the formal diagnosis and not saying that these students do not deserve that quality intensive intervention. Right. I think we have to read 112, the recommendation 112, very clearly under that bolded overall description of what this section of professional assessments is all about, that for identifying word reading disability and dyslexia, these are the criteria. 
but not that those are the only criteria for addressing reading difficulties or providing reading intervention. So that, that bold heading piece yes. has to be understood with this recommendation. Yeah. Then number one, 13 is essential. And we've kind of already addressed on this on saying that students do not to be need to be at a certain age or grade level to be considered for assessment. Right. We shouldn't delay the identification of learning disabilities uh, and not keep students from receiving that early evidence based in structured uh, structured literacy interventions. Yes. By the end of grade one is what they're saying. I think that we need to get those intervention in as soon as possible. As soon as we are aware of risk, it doesn't mean that we need to get a diagnosis exactly. involved. Um, but I think, you know, the, the, some of the formal assessments that are standardized, such as the, the, the CTOP, the comprehensive test of phonological processing and, uh, looking at some of the other measures that it, you know, may be more appropriate for a, a school psychologist or a speech and language pathologist to administer, to identify just exactly where the, where the problems are, are important, but not saying that we're going to give that kindergarten student necessarily a diagnosis. I mean, depending on their profile, it may be appropriate, um, but it's, it's about, um, Right. Where I am, yeah. there's not yet enough structured literacy classroom instruction. Forget it. I'm not talking about intervention at the moment, but just uh, high quality classroom instruction does not yet match the structured literacy approach mm -hmm. as much as I would sort of expect it to get to once we have a real understanding of how important it is for all kids to learn to read. That, that that classroom instruction needs to be the structured literacy approach first. Mm -hmm. And then within that, yes, you need to know about the child's ability to play with the sounds in words, their ability to segment the sounds in words or blend the sounds in words, phonological awareness, um, their ability to learn the connection between letters and sounds, the phonics, you know, all of that has to be taught before you can determine that a child's having trouble learning it. And so it, you, have to, you have to have enough structured literacy instruction. Um, and there's still places where that, that's not happening as much as, as, you know, when kindergartens should be highly play-based and, uh, you know, developmentally appropriate activities, but that play in those developmental activities, of uh, developmental appropriate activities can be quite structured and quite, explicit instruction, which is what children need. It's not just exploration play. Mm -hmm. so. Now, number 114 is uh, something that I think goes back to how we were uh, describing things in, in the 1990s, referring to dyslexia as an umbrella term for all types of learning disabilities. Uh, which really it isn't the case. Dyslexia specifically has to do with word reading and spelling, and it's something else when it's mathematics or looking at other parts of language. So I think this is just a, a clarification thing to help 
make sure that we're using the appropriate terminology uh, for students. Yes. And I think that um, there, there's, you know, there's enough, there's enough controversy, I think, about, you know, what is the benefit of having any term, I'm not talking about dyslexia, but any term that sort of draws a distinction on some kind of continuum, like these children are developed, you know, kids, let's say, look at math, you know, the norm, everybody probably remembers that bell, I shouldn't say everybody, the lots of people will know the bell curve, mm -hmm. where math abilities you know some people have very weak math abilities there's very few people most people have kind of average levels of abilities and then some people have extreme strength in mathematics mm -hmm. and when we when we're trying to determine how we decide if something is an issue or a problem or a disorder we have to look at that sort of um, how frequent is it how uh, problematic is it and the frequency Mm -hmm. matters like if something you know if half of people struggle with something it's not a disorder it's just normal human behavior mm -hmm. um if 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 only one percent of the population has a struggle with something then they probably need some extra special supports in order to progress as best as possible so the question is where does that you know where do we draw those lines and that that is a problem with defining dyslexia okay mm -hmm. but I completely agree that we need to just, you know, determine how to distinguish between word reading difficulties, language difficulties, math difficulties, and so on. Um, but there's, but there's still challenges in identifying, you know, exactly where we draw the lines on dyslexia as well. So mm -hmm. there's lots of complexity in each one of these recommendations, I think is what it comes down to. Yeah. And, you know, I like how uh, number 117 highlights the importance that these should apply to students learning in French. Yes. And that these students should have equitable access to professional assessments. And I think it's important to note that this should be happening in our core, sorry, in our French immersion schools. Right. And our, oh, I can't remember. The French language schools. Yeah. And they can have the supports to, depending on the diag, the the individual's access to the French language, if they have if they're English first language in a French immersion program, if they have the ability to comprehend, learn, and understand in the language, there is no. We're not saying that just because they're dyslexic, they need to leave the program because there's exactly. so many kids that are filtered out because they have dyslexia, even though they have the, they're able to learn the language. Uh, and I think that's, you know, it, it's a family decision to do its best for the family. Yes. And if it's best for your family, that's a different story than the school saying, oh, you're dyslexic, you have to leave. Absolutely. And that makes me, makes me quite irate when I've heard those stories and I talk with people from a policy perspective about it's certainly in Alberta, that's already contrary to policy, but it doesn't mean that it happens, um, or it doesn't mean that everybody follows the policy, I guess, because there's no evidence to suggest that, you know, if you're, if you're dyslexic, you need specialized intervention, regardless of your language of instruction. Yeah. So it, you're, you're not going to be better off yeah. moving into an English language program if you're not getting, you know, the highly specialized intervention and if you can get highly specialized intervention why not in french yeah. 
So, you know, it, it has, you have to think this through from a real logical perspective. Mm -hmm. Moving into a unilingual program is not an, not an intervention for dyslexia. Yeah. It, it just isn't. Now, there are arguments to be made in terms of learning two codes. Yes. And I have talked because it's obviously there's more to learn. Yeah. If you're learning the code of both the English language and the French language at the word level. So there are reasonable questions to ask about when are we going to focus on which code and is there a correct and, you know, that's where the family decision making and the good consultation and collaboration in terms of how are we going to address that issue that the child is trying to learn two codes. Um, but that, but that's a different question. That's a different question. <laughs> exactly. Now I want to go down to the next heading when we're establishing criteria for referring students with a suspected reading disability for assessment. 119 says school boards should create clear, transparent written criteria and formalize their processes for referring students with suspected reading disabilities for psychoeducational assessments based on the young student's response to intervention or RTI. Uh, the criteria should recognize that any young student who has not responded appropriately based on measures of word and not and or non-word reading accuracy and or fluency and text reading fluency and comprehension. After a period of classroom instruction and early evidence-based intervention should be referred for a psychoeducational assessment. Older students beyond grade two who have word reading accuracy and fluency difficulties should be referred for assessment immediately. Young and older students should receive more intensive evidence-based interventions while they are waiting to be assessed, speech and language pathologists can be a resource for assessment for all students with reading difficulties, particularly when there are concerns about language development and to help determine if the student has a language disorder. And I know there are a lot of speech and language pathologists who are wanting to highlight uh, the developmental language disorder. Yes, and, and that's important. Recognizing that as well. Yes, yeah. and. I find this recommendation both very positive and might be, again, I'm just worried about slight confusion for people because of in, in other parts of this document and just in terms of best practice, you and I have had that conversation about why do you ever really need this intellectual abilities or the, you know, the diagnosis based that includes an IQ test or why do you ever have to have a formal diagnosis? So I kind of wish they they had actually where it says early evidence based in this is about the middle of the paragraph early evidence based intervention should be referred for a psychoeducational assessment. Uh, I, I tend to wish it had been worded could be assessed or rec referred for a psychoeducational assessment because I'm I'm still not sure that it's necessary in every case. Um, after a period of intervention that, you know, if we, it takes time to go through an entire response to intervention protocol. You know, sometimes when we try an intervention, it's working, but it's working fairly slowly. So maybe we try a different intervention, hoping that it will have better impact. 
and it's actually not working even as well as the first one. So maybe we try something else, but maybe we go back to the first one and say, this is working. We just need to keep doing lots of it and more of it and increase the frequency of our intervention, increase the less session length, increase the, you know, in, or decrease the people student ratio so that they're getting one-on-one -on -one instead of small group or whatever. And that there, there are students with reading difficulties that are just going to take a lot of intensive intervention. And if we know what that is and our progress is going, and we've tried, you know, we're, we've tried to make sure that we're using the best for this student, mm -hmm. then I'm, I'm, not, I'm not entirely convinced every student is always going to need. It's, I usually say, if you, don't, if you have a question, get a psychoeducational assessment. So what is the question that you have? But I'm very glad to see that what I like about this recommendation is having clear criteria having those consistent criteria that are written down that people don't have to argue about that they don't have to listen to you know well your child isn't in grade three yet so we're not going to refer them for an assessment because we don't do that until grade three but if you go to the school next door you go to the district next over you get a different story it's that consistency of policy of what we're trying to do to make sure every child learns to read that is important in this one, I think. And it, it's, to me, it's about equity. Yes. Because uh, it, it shouldn't depend on the school that you're at of whether you get the appropriate accommodation assessment and support that you need to succeed. Yes. And unfortunately, right now, that can most often be the case. It's kind of luck of the draw, whether you have the uh, support and the the education within the school and the training within the school to support you. And that that's one comment that I wanted to say about your intervention example uh, is the skill and the training needed to be able to change and adapt an intervention is very big. And make sure that our learning resources teachers have that training and understanding of how to do this. Now, this is not something that's gonna happen overnight. It's and it's not something that can be a self-taught skill. It needs that support and guidance to move through from someone who has done it, has the experience and has the understanding and the ability to look at the student profile and judge based on that profile what intervention is going to be best suited for the student. There, when we talk about the science of reading and structured literacy, it's not one program. Right. It's not one idea. And it's not a one size. Higher body of knowledge. Right. So we need to make sure that we're using what the student is telling us about their learning profile and using that to select the correct intervention. Otherwise, we may put them in intervention that's not supporting the needs that they need support in. It may be too high or too low. And of course, we're not going to see results if we're not targeting the appropriate skills. Right. And, and it may, like you say, too high or too low. Or sadly, I still see things like um, teachers thinking that the best thing to do, this child is struggling with reading comprehension. 
And so I'm, you know, we do, we do a lot of intervention around reading comprehension and we teach them strategies and we try to, you know, build in that automated, that they'll use these strategies, they'll generalize them to their regular reading, even if we're teaching them in a pull-out situation, et cetera, et cetera. All this focus on this child's reading comprehension and then I come in and let's say, look at a, uh, the child's actual reading profile. And I see lots of hints that the child can't actually decode efficiently. Yeah. And then when we go and we actually look at that, we see what well, the reason that, you know, we can't start with reading comprehension when the problem is the child can't lift the words off the page. Yeah. Let's address that first yeah. because you have to know what the words say before you can understand them. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's got to be the right part of reading that you're intervening on. Exactly. You need that right puzzle piece, right? <laughs> exactly. Uh, and I know I've said that before, but I can't help, you know, the, these same themes come up throughout mm -hmm. the report, right? That um, it's a matter of teacher knowledge and it's a lot of knowledge. So we have to expect that um, you know, it's going to take a lot of time and a lot of uh, resources, financial and otherwise. Finances and time are the two, you know, the, the, the dollar uh, finances and the time resources, I guess. Yeah. And just because I want to be cognizant of time and I do want to kind of get through a couple of these other recommendations, I'm kind of going to bring them together, making sure that there is no bias looking at language status, race, um, or individuals that have had less economically privileged backgrounds right. are not getting the access to the assessments that they deserve. We need to remove barriers for students reading, receiving the assessments, such as providing the transportation and virtual assessments that at least with COVID, you know, that's one thing that's come mm -hmm. from it is the ability that we can do some or most of these assessments virtually now. So it shouldn't mean that just because a student lives in a remote area, they're not able to get that support. The one that I think is crucial is 122. School boards should eliminate any limits on how many students can be referred for assessment. Any student who meets the criteria should receive or should be referred to an assessment. Now, I think should should go be changed to need. Yeah, it must be. Or yeah. Need to yeah. eliminate any limits on how many assessments or how many students can be referred for assessments. Any student who meets the criteria must yeah. be referred for an assessment. Yeah. This is an equity issue. I agree. And I would, I would say, and the fastest way to be able to deal with this, okay, because right now we have huge shortages of sort of time and resources. There's not enough professionals in school systems currently mm -hmm. to keep up. The reason there are limits right now is because we don't have enough psychologists being paid for by the school systems to do the assessments. It's not that that couldn't happen. It's that the dollars aren't there. Like they're not being deployed in that area but so people say well we just don't have you know we we only get two assessments a year or our school division only well that's a decision being made at a policy level and a financial level the school systems wanted to be hiring more psychologists they could be doing that however 
they could also be increasing the quality of classroom instruction and the earliest levels of intervention. Because there's a lot of kids that are more instructional casualties than, or they're on the borderline of being an instructional casualty versus they actually have a learning disorder. An instructional casualty is more that they've been taught in a more whole language approach, which is not what they need. And if they were just taught the way that they need to be taught, that aligns with how all kids can learn to read. So yes, I, I just think that the, the best way to lower the number of assessments that you want to do is to be teaching and intervening really well so you don't have those assessments to do. Now, 124 looks at the need to stop requiring multilingual students to have a minimum number of years of learning English or French before referring them to an assessment. And again, this is an equity issue. I mean, the, the, the individual must have at least conversational English and the basics, but it shouldn't be, you have to be in English or French for five years because then you're considered to have enough language. Young children pick up language very quickly. Typical. What? Typically developing young children do. Sorry, yeah. Typically developing young children pick up language fairly quickly. Yes. And there is information that we can learn from their first language that can help inform our understanding of why they are struggling in yeah. second language. And I just think as long as we recognize that 124 is referring them for assessment, that does not mean the same thing as referring them to get a diagnosis. Yeah. Okay. We're not saying you can diagnose a child who's only been here for a year with a specific learning disorder and reading necessarily because that, that is not always the case. Doesn't mean you can't assess them for, refer them for assessment. Yeah. And all of that detailed assessment of reading, spelling, writing, and math is appropriate. The academic assessment is definitely, you know, there should be no barriers or limits to that doesn't mean you have to result in a diagnosis of something wrong with the child. Yeah, exactly. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Sarah. I've really enjoyed a conversation about really that assessment and a little bit about the identification piece because it, it, it's such a crucial piece for us to understand and find ways to make sure that our students are getting access to the support that they need to have that right to read. Yes. Yeah. And the expertise is more, much, much, much more important than the label that results. You know, you may get a diagnosis that should guide instruction, but it's the expertise of uh, compiling all the background information, understanding the whole story, understanding all the factors involved, looking at the quantitative test results and integrating that information for teachers and parents to provide the next best steps of instruction and intervention. And, you know, I, I do want to say something here because there's, there's a lot of criticism for the price of a psychoeducational assessment. And I don't think educators and parents understand the amount of time, skill, and practice required to do a psychoeducational assessment and produce a report that is meaningful 
and can be taken at face value to understand how to support these students. It may just mean three to five hours of testing one-on-one -on -one with that student face-to-face, -face, but that doesn't look at all the reports and information you look at before working with the student, the cost of the assessments that you are using, mm -hmm. the cost of the training that you took to get and where and you are, and the years of experience. That you're and the years of experience. <laughs> People do not have a problem paying $150 for an hour of a massage. That's right. But when a school psychologist might be making less than that, when you look at the amount of time that they actually put into the assessment, they're up in arms. I, I actually often make that comparison. If you look at what, let's say, for example, I, I'm typically in the range of about $2,500 to do an assessment. And uh, if you look at what you pay a lawyer mm -hmm. to do a very straightforward transaction on a house purchase, for example, you may be up in that there. And I happen to know a little bit about that area. It's very straightforward. It's very procedural. There's not a lot of complexity in most house purchases mm -hmm. and you're paying a lawyer um, and nobody ever, I mean, people beef about how much a lawyer costs, but not from the perspective of it's not worth it. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and so, yes, uh, I mean, I think you and I yeah, could, could talk about the frustrations of that, but um, it costs money to have professionals who have spent, I spent eight years in university um, you know, uh, different people, you know, with the doctorates have spent a lot more time than I have sometimes. So, you know, it's takes us time. Wonderful. Thank you. Thanks so much. Really good to be here with you.